It's time for Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester, America's premier automotive news and information talk show. Ken loves talking all about cars, past, present, and future. Here he is, that automotive nerd with a historical twist, Ken Chester. Welcome to another hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm your host, Ken Chester. I'm so glad you could join me for this hour. As always, we have plenty to talk about and discuss, so let's get to it. First, a bit later during this segment, Volvo gets detoured with its autonomous vehicle project and driverless car insurance comes to America. That is in breaking news. Topics for this hour include the unexpected impact of autonomous cars, a future with windows that make electricity, and finally, another Tesla competitor. Engaging with me is easy and convenient. Call or text the Roadworthy Driveline at 872-222-9793 anytime, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. If you would rather email, that address is ken at roadworthydrive.com. Either way, you connect you with me and the show. I want to hear from you. Roadworthy Drive is indeed a team effort. The designated adult at the controls, as always, is my friend and Roadworthy Drive executive producer, Jack DeLeon. Hey, Jack. Hi, Ken. How are you? Not too bad. The holidays treating you okay, sir. Oh, yes. Well, I'm glad way, to hear that. Way, way, way too much food, and I'm going to have to go on another diet. Another diet? Oh, my goodness. It seems like I'm on a constant diet. Have you found one that works for you? Then? No. Oh, my. It's no. Not... See, here's the problem. Uh-huh. Somebody said to me one day, do you like seafood? Yes, I seafood. I eat it. Makes sense to me. You makes, need to get off that diet. Makes, makes sense to me. Okay, Ken, let's talk about breaking news this week. Um, what happened to Volvo? Well, Volvo had a project. Um, they had announced it with great fanfare a while back that they were going to have a project in their hometown of Gothenburg, Sweden, where they were going to actually put autonomous cars in the hands of some 100 families to travel on public roads. And so that they could evaluate the vehicles and tweak the technology. Ah, mm -hmm. uh, not so much. What happened? Well, you know, it's like anything. When you're on the edge of cutting technology, there are bumps in the road. Part of Volvo's problems is they wanted to hold out as long as they could for the sensor technology before picking a sensor uh, provider. Partially because all of that is evolving so quickly and improving so much. They wanted to get the best technology they could so they could stay cutting edge. Mm -hmm. So they've been holding out and holding out and holding out. Also, their issue, they wanted to make sure that when they did launch this technology that people would be able to trust it. Because they couldn't trust it, they wouldn't use it, and if they wouldn't use it, what's the point? Well, and the other side of this argument too, Ken, becomes if you try it once and you can't trust it, are you really ever going to trust it again? No, and that's why... Volvo, in their methodical way, is taking their time. And that's okay because this technology, which is in the process of disrupting the auto industry and everybody's into it, Volvo actually has an edge because a number of the vehicles used in evaluation with companies like Waymo and some others were actually Volvos. Uber's testing is Volvos, the Volvo XC90 as a matter of fact, which, in fact, was partially designed with Uber in mind for the tests that they're doing now. And a lot of people didn't realize that. Um, what they're 
what they're anticipating is instead of now having fully autonomous, what they call full level four autonomy, that means full autonomy. The vehicle is completely autonomous. When you hear full level four, that's what they mean. They feel that they'll be ready now, instead of now in 2017, they'll be ready in 2021. That's another four years from now. However, they're still going to provide families with the XC90, except that they will introduce the tech gradually. So in other words, instead of all or nothing, they'll gradually. And here's an interesting aside. They're going to also have cameras inside the vehicles to, so they can see how the families that drive these vehicles interact with the technology, which when you think about it, makes sense. You know, what are they doing? What are they not doing? How are they responding to what the vehicle is doing? These are important things so that you can tweak it, particularly if they're acting in a way the engineers never imagined. You know, otherwise saying, oh, no, we expected them to do that, but they're doing this. Let's find out why, what's causing them to do it that way. So you've got a lot of that going on, but they believe that their methodical approach will make their full level four autonomous vehicle even better when it comes out in 2021. Okay. So, and also remember, Volvo got that firm order we reported here a number of weeks ago from Uber for fully autonomous vehicles. So the question is now, if Volvo's putting this off to 2021 and Uber was expected to start getting fully autonomous cars in 2019, does that put that 24,000 unit order back two years? Or are they going to get what we call, instead of fully autonomous, maybe highly automated vehicles, which are uh, conditionally autonomous in the case of Tesla's autopilot or GM Super Cruise? Don't know. Okay, and here's a question that I have. Mm -hmm. Is this car, if they come out with what you just said in 2019, mm -hmm. can they make that car completely autonomous by changing the software program? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right now, that's the thing. You're, you're building this in. See, what most people don't realize, this whole autonomous project is being built in layers and is being built from the existing systems that have been evolving in cars since really 2006. Um, NHTSA made certain conditional things standard in 2011, like uh, uh, traction control, stability control, side impact airbags, all had to be. And a lot of the automakers beat that. Uh, deadline. Now what you're seeing is other technology that NHTSA is requiring by 2022, which is emer automatic emergency braking. More and more cars are getting equipped with that ahead of time. The big question is, is how much autonomy, if in fact Volvo's order doesn't slide with Uber, which it might, depending on what Uber wants, if they want fully autonomous vehicles, they may have to wait two years instead of starting to get them in 2019 because it was a gradual order anyway. You know, will they take a highly autonomous, a highly automated vehicle or will they hold out for the fully autonomous one? And we'll have to wait and see about that because we haven't heard and it hasn't been reported yet as to how that's going to go relative to that order being placed a number of weeks ago. So we'll have to see about that. OK, Ken, um, it's a thing. It, it's a thing. OK, do tell. Driverless car insurance has finally come to the United States. I'm going to let you explain this before I ask my questions. Okay. This upstart company, Waymo, is going to use, uh, when they start their ride-hailing service, their fully autonomous ride-hailing service in Arizona, mm -hmm. they are having an insurance company that will insure the riders for, uh, through any theft or loss or injury while riding in these vehicles. 
So okay. Now, current any state law currently, if you're driving, you're responsible. It's your vehicle. Well, these people don't own them, and they're not driving. So the insurance is going to actually be on the operator, uh, or I should say the owner, not the occupants for the first time. Okay, and how do I, as an occupant, if I am hurt in the car, you're telling me that this insurance company is going to pay me for my medical expenses? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Because you're not driving. So if anything should happen to you uh, as a result or something, maybe you left something and it got stolen in the vehicle, you're covered. And the best part of it is you don't have to carry the insurance. Am I in a roundabout way, paying for the insurance. when I if, if we're doing the ride hailing, that's going to be a fee. Is the insurance in the fee? They are silent to that, but I would imagine right now the whole big thing is this is cutting edge. So I'm sure they're probably going to absorb some of this while they develop experience and develop a history on how this is going to go. I mean, this is brand new. And what they're anticipating, what the industry is anticipating is that insurance companies stand to lose 80% of their premium income as autonomous cars, safer than human drivers, uh, hit the road in numbers. Now, the piece talks about small companies losing out, but I contend a small insurance company may find a niche and actually thrive. It may be a great thing. I think the majors are the ones that are going to have a problem because their model is set to all this, and they've got to change their model. If you're a smaller company, you might say, you know what? I might do this Waymo thing or an Apple thing or whatever and get into that piece of it. And right now, there's really no federal regulations regarding this approach. Again, we're back to all of this is moving at the speed of sound and the legislation hasn't caught up yet. And, and it would be tough for it to catch up anyway. I mean, it's moving that fast. And legislation is a deliberative process. So we'll just keep our eyes on it. But we thought you should know. Um, when we Coming up. The unexpected impact of autonomous cars. And then later, and you're going to love this, Jack, windows that, con that conduct electricity. It's a thing. And they're making them now in the United States. You're riding shotgun with Ken and Roteworthy Drive. Go to RoadworthyDrive.com to check out Ken's blog, listen to past shows, and the times when you can see the show on Facebook Live. APR or $750 cash back on Sable. See your dealer for details. If you're just joining us, this is the second segment of the hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm Ken Chester. Thank you for dropping by. Now, regular listeners know that we've explored many 
the many aspects and evolution of autonomous vehicles. But what about the unexpected impact of an autonomous vehicle economy? Thought we might explore that part of our lives as this technology edges closer and closer to the mainstream. Now, I decided to, uh, there was one writer um, that I was reading that uh, kind of opened it with this. And he says, we're living in exciting times. And I went, you think? Um, his argument is, I don't think people have fully grasped the massive shift we could experience over the next five years with self-driving cars. Um, I preface it with this. I would argue not the next five years, but really the next 13. Actually, and I've said it here before, I am calling 2020 to 2030 the transformative decade. I think what we're going to see during this time is so many different things happening, so much technology that finally gains traction and we start voting with our dollars, with our preferences, as this stuff is introduced into the mainstream. Now, he represents a few things that I thought were interesting enough to talk about that I would talk about. One, accidents would be reduced. Well, we talked about that. A figure that we've always tossed around and NHTSA's tossed around, 94% of accidents are driver error or as a result of driver decision. That's going to be drastically reduced. Another thing he talks about. Insurers and taxi services could suffer. Uh, may I tell you, because of Lyft, because of Uber, Maven, a host of others, that's happening right now. Right now, taxi companies are going in the bigger cities are actually going bankrupt. This is happening right now. Um, as far as insurance companies, as autonomous cars come in, accidents go away, there'll be some um, opportunities to insure for like theft or loss or property damage. But collisions, you know, I don't think it will totally eliminate collisions, but yeah, could go down by 80% according to NHTSA. So yeah, quite a bit to where it's no longer um, lucrative for them. My argument, it's not the large, it's not the larger companies that will survive. I would argue the smaller companies would. Reason? Smaller companies nimble. They're going to look for niches that they can take advantage of in this fast-changing ground. And if you're smaller, you've got less invested in the overall way of doing things. Larger companies are slow, and they've got process and procedure and investments in things. I would say that the winners will be the nimble. Um, if there are large companies that are nimble, they'll win. But typically, historically, they're not. Case in point, to give you an example. Um, I, I use the Chevy short block V8 as an example. GM held on to that. They invented it. They debuted it in 1955. GM would build that engine for 40 years, even as other technologies eclipsed it. And even then, it would take GM another 10 years to embrace and move away from that engine. Why? They had billions invested. They had lines. They had procedures. They had investment. They had research. Uh, a large company... Same way, be it insurance or some other thing. So my argument would be small insurance companies would probably be the winners because of being nimble. But here's a question for you. And, and I wondered about this. What would tr public transportation be like in a world of ride sharing, ride hailing, uh, heck, being able to rent your car out while you're at work? How does this figure? Um, and I don't know. I really don't know. I think that, for the one thing, there'll be a smaller subset for people 
who have mobility challenges, I think that maybe public transportation shrinks to that piece of it, which right now is really a small piece. It's kind of their outreach. I think that's where they become in filling those gaps where standard, if you even use that term, or I should say market-available mobility options are still inefficient for somebody who's either handicapped or infirm, even in an autonomous world. Really? That's what I think. Okay. Um, because I'm, having had experience with this, mm -hmm. um, I know how important it was to my sister mm -hmm. to have the fact that she could she could still drive. She just mm -hmm. didn't have one leg. Mm -hmm. And when she didn't have her car, those were probably her worst days. Yeah. But here's the thing. I think that, again, with this transformative decade, there's going to be so many options. But I'm just thinking about the subset of public transportation. What will that look like if I can hail a car? I don't need to take a bus. If I can hail a car that I can reach with an app, which would be available to my beck and call to do whatever I want for pennies, literally, a day. Um, you know, and again, so many different ways. I don't have to go home the same way I came. And that's what we're looking at in this brave new world. But I'm looking at people who right now have mobility challenges that need, uh, like Joyride, for example, in our community where... Uh, it's an organization that takes people to, like, the doctor's appointments and things and is a human being that helps people with their wheelchairs and things like that. Mm -hmm. People who already have a challenge that even these many different mobility options is not an option for them because they have limited ability to get around and they need that extra. We'll have to see. I think public transportation caters to them, which means it becomes smaller more precise, but in the end, more efficient. Well, don't you think we're already seeing that now in our community? I think we're making a move, but because, I think... Because if you look at our public transit, mm -hmm. if you're in a wheelchair, you can get on the bus. You can. Um, if you need to go someplace, we have what's called paratransit. Right. They will come get you and specifically take you to a spot where you need to be. And I'm thinking that the future will look more like paratransit than the typical definition of public transportation in the United States today. We're a bus culture here in this community. Mm -hmm. Back east, there are subway and trackless trolley and bus culture that does not necessarily lend itself well to people with mobility challenges. And I think that in this future, the paratransit of being very hands-on, where you have a human being that can come into your home or community and help you get into the vehicle. I think you're going to see more of that, not less. I think that's where public – my take on it, we're going to see. I mean, you know, right now we don't know. But it's my take. I think that will be one thing. But here's something that you might not have thought about. Advertising will change. Yeah, it will change. On the one hand, it becomes more personal and maybe more intrusive than we'd like. You know, and maybe even advertisements in the vehicle itself if it's a ride-sharing vehicle. So, you know, it, it can get there. Like so, we need another distraction. Like we do. But this is our future, and I guess time will tell. We'll keep an eye on it. Next up, solar windows that produce electricity. And later, Chinese car maker Neo takes aim at Tesla. This is Roadworthy Drive. Roadworthy.
Newsworthydrive.com is the place to keep up with the latest happenings with Ken and the show. Welcome to segment number three of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm your host, Ken Chester. For those of you who want or need more than your fair share of the road, may I suggest the show website, www.roadworthydrive.com. There you can listen to past shows, watch video of our weekly behind-the-scenes antics in studio as we produce the show, and more. The website's also a great place to discover where we are in the universe of social media. Sasha keeps things interesting and informative during the week between the shows online, seeing how she keeps the social in our social media. Electricity. It seems to be everywhere. Traditional places, untraditional places, different places. To this list, I'm going to add windows. Jack looks up. That's good. Right. Windows. What kind of windows are we talking about? Regular windows. That make electricity. Okay. I'll try this again. I was <laughs> not specific enough. Okay. Your house windows, your car windows, windows in your office building. What are we talking about? Office building windows primarily. Okay. Sunroof in your car. And heck, maybe eventually your home. Okay. I'm really excited about this because what they figured out, this new company, this upstart, uh, has figured out a way to generate electricity using what they call a uh, organic uh, clear substance that will use all kinds of light. You're laughing. Did I miss something? You got that look in your face. I went somewhere I probably shouldn't have gone. Probably not have gone, no. Go on. Let me me introduce you to Solar Window. Maryland-based Solar Window thinks the future could come from a different angle. The company claims that when installed on a 50-story building, its solar windows could generate up to 50 times more power than conventional roof panels. That's a lot of windows. And they've been around for almost 20 years working on this. So it's not new. Um, But think about this for a minute. And this is what got me so excited. If If you have a way to generate electricity from literally any kind of light, including um, fluorescent light, mm-hmm. indirect light, areas in which regular solar panels need direct sunlight to work, right. these don't. Okay, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. At some point in time here, with all the ways that we're about to be able to generate electricity, at what point in time do we no longer need the power company? Very very soon. That's the other reason why I got excited about this. Okay, but right now, you have the ability to sell your excess power back to the power company. Where that capability is indeed growing, um, with the falling with the falling cost of battery storage systems. Right. See, battery storage seems to be the missing piece between renewable energy and reliable, predictable. Uh, power available to the grid. The biggest challenge they had is, yeah, okay, great on a windy day, but I don't need it on a windy day. If it's cloudy or it's raining or there's no wind, um, I need power then. So I still need to have spinning, what they call spinning capacity at right. the power plant, and somebody's got to pay for that, which is the ratepayers. Imagine a world with 
battery storage, uh, solar, wind, store it in a battery. Um, maybe that battery is even in your car or at your home that you could either power your house, sell it to the grid, depending on a prearranged schedule that you were willing to sell it at so much a kilowatt. And theoretically, you may not even need the high, the long. The high tension lines. Yeah, the miles of high tension lines become irrelevant because you can literally develop communities that have enough of this power availability to generate its own decentralized power and maybe only connected or interconnected to offer to other parts of the community who might be short that day. Okay, so what you're saying is the south side of the town that we live in could be powering the north side because we, on the south side we have extra power. Or maybe even downtown during business hours. Right. You know, that, uh, okay, you know, we sell it to downtown. At the end of the day, maybe they sell it back to us. Maybe we don't even need it as our electric cars go home or our electric windows generate this electricity. This is fascinating. The thing I was thinking about, Right now, they're concentrating on uh, uh, office buildings and commercial uses. Correct. But they're also developing where it's flexible. That tells me there's a day when imagine if every car window in your vehicle could generate electricity because it didn't need direct sunlight. Any kind of light would do. Okay. Which means, heck, you park it under a street light. It's generating electricity. Okay, Ken, here's, here's my question. Mm -hmm. At what point in time does the power company cease being the power company and becomes a power broker? Who knows? And that's the beautiful part of our transformative decade I keep talking about. We're going to see a change. We're going to see a, a, a earth, a sea of change in pretty much everything we're familiar with. Because of all of these things that are happening. Some are going to be interconnected in ways like these solar windows. Mm -hmm. Uh, which could be, when they figure it out, uh, apply it to cars. I could imagine that you could use these solar windows to reduce the drag on the battery systems in the car, either to recharge the batteries um, in real time, cost you not, you don't even have to plug it in. Imagine if you had enough in the windows to recharge the battery without even having to plug it in at all, ever. And you were able to get over the mileage barrier with a lot of the electric cars have and we've now. and we've but we've talked about and we've, that and we've talked and we've talked about that but the one thing i think ken we really need to, to mention to folks here is the fact that yes this is a, yes this is a car show mm -hmm. but because of everything that is happening we're also a tech show we're also a tech show mm -hmm. and that because one is helping the other or depending upon your perspective will affect the other in well, some kind you, of way. Correct. In some ways that we know, in some ways we don't. I mean, when I saw this, I got excited because I knew this is another piece of the puzzle uh, for changing the whole way that power is generated, delivered, and consumed and sold. That the goals of decentralized power, um, our vehicles will become part of the solution, not just part of the problem. Right now, a vehicle is only good to burn fossil fuel. That's all it does. It adds to climate change. It adds to the CO2 in the atmosphere. It adds to pollution. It adds to uh, hazardous materials that have to be gotten rid of at end of life. Imagine a vehicle that even after the electric, the battery in that car is no longer needed or useful, 
you can still use it stationary as a powered storage unit. There is a second life for that stuff. This is another piece of the puzzle. Solar windows, they're doing this. They're doing this. And we're going to see more of this as they continue to perfect it. And you know the thing that they say the most about this? What? The payback. How long, if you bought their windows, would you take the break even? I would have no idea. You ready for this? Go. One year. Wow. One year. Compared to 8 to 12 for regular solar panels. One year. Check that out. Well, yeah, and you'd also be cutting your expenses, too. Quite a bit. Yeah. Put that in your cereal. Well, when we come back, um, we're going to talk about Neo, another Tesla contender. This here is Roadworthy Drive. You're listening to Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester on the Roadworthy Drive Radio Network. This is the fourth and final segment of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm your host, Ken Chester. Thanks for listening. In this segment, I want to reintroduce you to Chinese automaker Neo. A while back, we introduced the automaker as they displayed a few concepts of potential electric and anonymous, autonomous excuse me, vehicles that they were planning to introduce in the next several years. Well, unlike the fate suffered by the meltdown of Faraday Future, another Chinese automaker, they've actually developed for sale a darn good-looking Tesla competitor worthy of consideration. May I introduce the NEO ES8? It's an SUV. They're going to make it to order. It's all electric. It has an, a range of 220 miles. And a sticker price uh, actually falls between uh, a Tesla and uh, a Lexus. It's about, oh, let's see, this one, $67,000. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Two motors. Two electric motors, mm -hmm. 0 to 62, 4.4 seconds. And here's another thing. They've got a couple of different ways you can basically get your charge on. You can charge it the normal way. Okay. Or you can do this thing where for an extra $120 a month, and they'll knock $15,000 off the price of the vehicle, they'll swap out the battery. It takes three minutes. Say what? Yeah. They'll swap out the car battery in three minutes, send you on your way with a fully charged battery. Three minutes. For $150 a month? 120 Okay. But the thing is, no waiting. Charging would take longer than that. Well, you have a point. And did I mention they knock $15,000 off the, off the price of the vehicle? So it's not $120. It's not $67 and another $120. It's 67 minus 15 plus 120 a month. And it's a sharp-looking thing. It's kind of a cross between uh, the front of it looks a little Toyota-like, uh, but it's very square, but it's very sharp, and it looks very modern. Okay, since I haven't seen this, hold the picture up. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this thing, they've actually, the company actually started, um, and they actually built a fully autonomous supercar that broke a record. Let me see if I can get that piece of information for you. Um, let's see. It's right here. Looking for it. 
looking for it. Yeah. Their supercar is called the Neo EP9. It set a new world speed record for an autonomous vehicle at the Circuit of America's racetrack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The ES8 was originally introduced earlier this year at the Shanghai Auto Show a few months ago. Now, here's the thing. Faraday Future, we talked about a few shows ago. They're done. They're over. It's done. These folks ain't playing. Three years after the company was founded, the car is going on sale. Where are they selling it? China at first. Right now. Right now. Is this car going to be coming into a showroom near us? Perhaps. They ha- they, they've said they want to, but they haven't no final plans yet. And that's fine. Here's another thing. Difference between Neo and Faraday Future and Tesla. How many miles of testing you think this ES8 has gone through yet? I have no idea. 1.8 million miles. Before the first one goes on sale, they would have abused this thing for almost 2 million miles. Wow. Yeah, they're not playing. They raised a billion dollars from investors. Did I mention this company's three years old? Yep. Three years old. That is the speed of technology these days. You know, this company's gone from zero to vehicle in three years. And you got to wonder how many more companies are going to be like this. Mm -hmm. And these guys are looking, they're not playing. Well, first of all, you have to realize China is extremely serious about electric vehicles, and they're pushing their entire industry to build them. So there's this kind of land rush thing going on over there for electric vehicles, much the same way autonomous vehicles are going on over here. Mm -hmm. So China's got the double whammy. They're not only developing autonomous vehicles, but fully electric, fully autonomous vehicles. Because this ES8 is no hybrid. It is an all-electric crossover. And did I mention two electric motors? Yep. Two. Yeah. Let me tell you about the horsepower in this thing. Bear in mind, we were talking last week about what? Seven, on that, uh, that Chevy Corvette ZR1 had what? 755 horsepower? Yep. This is an SUV. 644 horsepower. That's almost as much as a Camaro ZL1. Okay, but again, I'm going to go back and ask the question that I uh, that I keep saying. Mm-hmm. A, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> B, why do we need this kind of horsepower if we're driving this thing in the city or even on the highway? Uh, why do people buy Porsche Cayennes? It's an SUV that goes fast. Why are people buying... Um, uh, Maserati uh, Levantes, another go-fast SUV. Why is Rolls-Royce and Bentley building SUVs? Because they sell. Yeah. And speed sells, brah. Speed sells. People want them. This thing is sharp-looking. And not only all of that, but this thing is going to be very, very advanced on the interior. I won't get into all of this, but here's another thing. Um, To those of you that, that... Listen really close. You'll understand the statement. 2037 is here now. Why did I say that? The ES-8 is produced at a world-class, fully automated facility. Three words. Fully automated facility. And they're not having any trouble building it, unlike somebody in Fremont, California. Who's having you trouble? You wouldn't happen to be talking about, oh, I don't know, Tesla? Yes, because these folks decided to do it the right way. They basically did a body in white. 
and tested the ever-living stuffing out of it. Okay. Which is the way you do it. I mean, they're, gonna, they're going to validate this thing almost 2 million miles before they sell the first one. How many miles do you think a Model 3 has traveled? Just saying. They've also using this vehicle uses more, more high-strength aluminum than any other vehicle built. And it's supposed to be one of the strongest vehicles in terms of body integrity ever built. And Chinese built. And, for, I mean, it looks like this thing could have been built in Germany. It's sharp looking. It and is I, very sharp looking. And I'm hoping they bring one to the States uh, because, believe it or not, the company has a U.S. office in San Jose, California. So that ought to tell you something. Isn't that real close to where uh, Tesla is? I'm not really sure, but they've got a U.S. office as well as Europe, uh, in both in London and Munich, as well as their home office in Shanghai, China. When you do it, they're coming. It's just a matter of time. And with that, we have come to the end of the road for this hour. On behalf of the Roadworthy Drive team, thanks for listening. You have been tuned to Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. See you later.